You're listening to Just One of the Guys, where after today's comic, I have a feeling that I really want the Ben Ray run gone. Well, here we are again. It's always such a pleasure. Remember when you tried to kill me twice? Oh, how we laughed and laughed, except I wasn't laughing. Under the circumstances, I've been shockingly nice. You want your freedom to be That's what I'm counting on I used to want you dead But now I only want you gone Hello everyone and welcome to episode 171 of Just One of the Guys A Green Lantern podcast hosted by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network my name's Sean Dingle, and what I do on the show is cover the Green Lantern comics, specifically the ones starting with cover date June 1990 and ending with cover date November 2004, all the while putting a special emphasis on my two favorite Green Lanterns, Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner. Unfortunately, we're coming to a point in time in the era of this Green Lantern comic book run where the books really aren't as good as they used to be. I'm not putting blame on Benjamin Rabe or even the artist or the editor, Peter Tomasi, I just... Something's gone awry. And I think we'll get into it when we get into the book. Ben Ray may not be the right writer for this book. He may not have the right idea specifically for some of the characters. And unfortunately, it's getting to be kind of a slog to cover these books. I really feel what Mike Bailey and Jeffrey Taylor are dealing with when they're covering from crisis to crisis. But we're going to be covering it regardless, Green Lantern number 171, plus we're going to be throwing in a couple of new promos in for you guys to listen to, and all of this will be coming up right after this. A long time ago, in a galaxy far Far away, a great adventure took place. Oh no! What will we do now? R2D2, you found a cigarette! Well, I don't think smoking is grown up at all. Don't be so ridiculous, R2. Underrules are for Earthlings. All you need is a little rewiring, but children need to be fully immunized. I'm Gala. Want to buy a boy? Sure, what you got? Wampa, wampa, wampa! We picked up something. It's the Millennium Falcon. I am Boba Fett. The ship you seek is nearby. Growing up Star Wars. Yay! Available the first Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.com Offer expires May 31st, 1980. In 1939, Timely Comics published its first issues. It later changed its name, first to Atlas Comics and then to Marvel Comics. In 2014, Marvel polled its fans asking for the 75 greatest Marvel stories from those 75 years and published that list in print form. The unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels countdown will walk through all 75 of these stories every Wednesday from December 31st, 2014 
to June 1, 2016. Join me, Blaine Dowler, and a cadre of other hosts, including established podcasting greats and emerging talents, as we run through the list, discuss each story in the context of its original release, and determine just what makes it so great. The unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown can be found at Bureau42.com, on iTunes, and on Stitcher. I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Dorn. And we want to ask you an important question. Are you sick and tired of other panel discussion shows wasting your time droning on and on about foreign policy, economics, and human rights? Or do you want to hear conversations about things that actually matter? We host a podcast called Radio vs. the Martians. Every month we gather a panel of our nation's finest minds and plunge a rusty prison shank into the heart of tough questions that have an impact on the lives of real people like you. Like, are drivers required to pull over for the Ghostbusters? Is the United Federation of Planets actually an oppressive dictatorship run by guidance counselors? Is Arnold Schwarzenegger secretly a genius? And are we being mean when we laugh at movies that are so bad they're good? So write your congressman and let them know that Radio vs. the Martians is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and on RadioVsTheMartians.com. Hey Gene, we should do a podcast. Sounds like a great idea, Jeff. but what will we talk about? How about a superhero that we both love? Perfect. Something like Thor or Captain America? Uh, both great choices, but um, I think they're being covered by somebody else already. Wait, I've got it. What about the protector of the universe? Like Voltron? No, no, no. The guy with the jewelry that lets him create whatever he wants. Ah, Green Lantern, nice. Close. No, this guy has cosmic awareness. Captain Marvel? Almost. I mean, Quasar. Ah, oh, Quasar. Who doesn't love a good Quasar? Tune in to the Quantum Cast, covering all things Quasar. Yes, that's right. You can find us at quantumbands.blogspot.com. And on the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Yeah, that, that didn't sound scripted at all, did it? All right, we are back. And before we get to this issue, let's do something that's actually going to be enjoyable, at least for me. Reading an email from one of you wonderful listeners. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. <laughs> and once again, this email comes from my good friend up in Canada, Mr. Scott Davis. He writes in talking about the Black Circle Orbit Night storyline, and he says, Hey, Sean, I was recently able to read the six-issue Black Circle Orbit Nights, and I had a few comments. On Green Arrow number 23, he said this was a decent issue, and it was interesting to see that Charlie Adler was the artist on this. I've read all of the Walking Dead comics, and it's fun to see the similarity of the characters in these issues. This was a good story by Rabe, and I'm looking forward to his run on Green Lantern. Uh, once you get to this, you may feel differently, Scott. Sorry. On page 16, it did give a shot at Guy Gardner, or was it actually a compliment when the two lovely ladies admit to each other that they both slept with Guy? Guy is a stud. Well, yes, Guy is a stud, but I don't see him sleeping around. He, I like to imagine him as a one-woman man, but yes, all the ladies should love Guy because he's Guy. Going back to the email, he says, I agree it's kind of strange how Kyle was egging Ollie on all the time, and it's not really him. The burned bodies at the end of the issue are brutal, and maybe that was a scene that got Adler the job on The Walking Dead. And I could possibly agree with that. The art style is very much similar to what we'd see in The Walking Dead, not only in the character designs of the sort of generic characters, but also the sort of graphic realism that he brings to the violence in the books. I think 
I think that may be a selling point of why he's done that. Unfortunately, I haven't seen any of his work on like his stuff on 2000 AD. I think he did some Judge Dredd stuff as well, but maybe that was another selling point to get him on the Walking Dead book as well. Scott continues Green Lantern 162. Again, it's Kyle versus Ollie. The Kyle versus Ollie bickering was really forced and uncomfortable to read. And the reveal at the end of the issue with Avin Sura coming out of the spaceship was interesting, but a bit uneventful, to be honest. Green Arrow 24. This was another good issue by Rabe, but the banter between Kyle and Ollie is getting painful to read. I agree that Amon Sur is written very suspiciously, and there's definitely something going on with him. Green Lantern 163, I agree with you, the story arc was definitely planned out a long time in advance so that Adler could do all the drawing for it. They definitely inserted these panels in both runs of Green Lantern, or sorry, Green Arrow and Green Lantern, which is probably why issue 161 seemed more like Winnick's farewell issue. Yeah, it, it kind of does, because this this just kind of seems like a sort of mini-series that they had plotted out that could have been inserted any time during the Jedwick run, and just happens to be finishing out his run, so that's probably a good catch there, Scott. I didn't even think on that. Green Arrow number 25. This was a decent story, but to be honest, I think it's starting to get a bit dull. I really didn't like how Kyle was written to be so ignorant that Amon Sur was untrustworthy right after Amon snacked the alien's neck right in front of him. It seems like it's obvious to everyone except Kyle. The bickering between Ollie and Kyle is also getting old. However, there was a nice splash in pages 6 and 7 of the destructive scene in Star City, and at the end we finally see the reveal that Ammon is bad. It's been telegraphed for three issues. Yeah, and that's kind of what I felt for a while. He, he seemed a bit suspicious. You might have been able to sort of think that he might just be coming from a different culture and this is just how he handles things, but it did seem a bit telegraphed. Not in-your-face telegraphed, but if you knew what to look for, you could definitely see it coming. Finally, Green Lantern 164. This was a decent issue, but again, it was a bit uneventful. In the end, the bad guy gets away, and the heroes have a beer and are friends now. Overall, it was a pretty decent story, though, but not one that I would probably come back to in the future. Overall, I'm a bit mixed with Winnick's run. There are definitely some high and low points, and to be honest, it must have been pretty tough to follow Ron Mars's run. Yeah, I have to agree with that. I think, for the most part, Judd Winnick did a really good job. There were some standout stories in there. I really like the hate crime storyline. The uh, Ion storyline was really good. Then he had, did some other things with the Matayak and the Magden that just didn't work. So, even though his run was a little shorter, it did have some really good high points, but it did kind of have some low points as well. Overall, I'd still have to say Ron Mars's run was more entertaining and more, it, it had better quality to it. Overall, it didn't have the lows that I think that Winnick's run. Maybe if Winnick had stuck around a little more and run with the character more, he would have had a more even-keeled run, but because he was only on there for, like, less than 30 issues, he didn't really get a chance to, well, it was more than 30 issues, he didn't really get a chance to develop the character in the way that Ron Mars had been. So, there you go. Anyway, Scott says, thanks and have a great week. Scott. Well, Scott, thank you for writing in. It's always a pleasure to get emails from you, Scott. Unfortunately, I don't have any other emails. <sighs> so it's time to get into this issue. Green Lantern, number 171. Green Lantern, number 171, was covered in January 2004 and released on November 26th of 2003. 
had a cover price of 225 US and 350 in Canada, and the title of this one was Wanted Part 1. The writer was Benjamin Robb, the penciler was James Bosch, the inker was Rodney Ramos, colorist was Moose Bowman, letter was Jared K. Fletcher, the associate editor was Stephen Wacker, <laughs> the editor was Pete Tomasi, and the cover art was by Kieran Grant. Green Lantern Kyle Rayner is dead. A flaming sword lodged in his chest, and a pool of blood seeping beneath him. With the stories being as bad as they were last time out, you'd think I'd be okay with not having to read another Ben Ray book, but sadly I've got a few more to go, so this can't be where I end the show. Actually, that image has the editor's note now on the page, and if we head to page two, we see the editor's note of then. Then, a slimeball alien on a spaceship is contacting a slimeball alien leader about the delivery of the Black Circle prostitutes for his quote-unquote pleasures. We cut to the hold of the ship, where we find that the cargo is made up of some very young-looking aliens who are destined for a life of sexual trafficking. But not if stowaway aliens and former Green Lantern Shalander Thane and Bernai Boon have anything to say about it. As the ship passes near an asteroid belt, its propulsion system is destroyed by an asteroid being flung into the ship by a shadowy figure in some leftover Shadowhawk armor. The slimeball alien tells his crew to seal the bridge, but Space Sergeant Kabuki Man, NYPD, has made his way onto the ship and is now ready to beat some ass. Back on Earth, David and Terry are talking about... David... maybe... Terry's? I'm not certain. One of their job offer to be the West Coast PR director for the Human Tolerance League. Terry says he's not wanting to uproot his life in New York City, but before they can discuss the matter more, David is called away for a convenient reason. A while later, Terry is gathered with Jenny Lynn Hayden, who's trying to get Terry to justify her not going on a date with Hottie McEmerald Fever. Terry says that since he's a Wall Street douchebag, he'll probably be all money markets and trust funds rather than bouncy bouncy yum yum. Terry says goodbye, and Jenny is met by her suitor, who picks her up in a horse-drawn carriage and hands her a dozen roses. Out in space, Shalandra and Panay are rescuing slaves and whipping up on the guards while Maroon Shadowhawk is interrogating the slimeball alien. Unfortunately, the interrogation gets cut short as some of the guards catch Ruby Shadowhawk unaware and blast him in the back for his trouble. Back again on Earth, Hottie and Ginny are finishing up their trip around the city, with Hottie hoping to seal the deal and get himself some of that sweet shamrock shake, if you know what I mean. Jenny rebuffs him at first, but after about five seconds of thinking it over, she energy lasses him into her arms and plants a teal tongue in his mouth. Cut to David's apartment, where David gives in and says he'll go to L.A. and take that job. Even though it was Terry who didn't want to leave. Um, happy or not for whatever reason, maybe because he and David are about to have some snuggle time, Terry says that he can't wait to tell everyone. Back again in space, the guards are firing on Scarlet Shadowhawk with their Predator-style shoulder blasters with little effect. At the same time, Commander Slimeball is trying to get into an escape pod when he encounters Shalandra, Benai, and the abused girl. Benai is none too pleased with Commander Slimeball and prepares to do a Mortal Kombat fatality move to his face. But over with Crimson Shadowhawk, he has manipulated the Predator guns to fire on the guards themselves, turning the settings to stun at the last minute. Crisis averted, Raspberry Shadowhawk pulls the gun out of the abused girl's hand before she can blast away at Commander Slimeball, and reveals himself as Green Lantern Kyle Rayner. 
You see, his ruse as Magenta Shadowhawk was only to get an in with the Black Circle for returning these stolen prostitutes. Something he communicates with the leader of the Black Circle himself, Amon Sur. Although this issue isn't as terrible as last week's, it is just as infuriating. At least we're getting further into Kyle trying to take down the Black Circle, which I guess is interesting. But we're also getting the convoluted story with Terry or David getting a job in L.A. I guess this might be another way to get a character out of the book, a la Moren, moving out from John. Plus we get the truly despicable story of Jenny dating Hottie McEnroe Emerald Fever. I'm really serious. This thing with Jenny has me really hating these books. If this were Kyle doing the same thing while Jenny was away for some reason, he would have more hatred than Guy Gardner during the JLI run. This isn't empowering for Jenny or even becoming a strong female character like Jenny, and I really, really hate it. Also, and as an aside, the book credits James Bosch as the penciler, but Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics said it was Jim Fern who did the pencils. I guess it's the same person, but I have no idea why he went under the pseudonym, other than he didn't want to have his artwork assigned to this very subpar issue. Again, also as an aside, this was the first issue to be edited by Peter Tomasi, who would continue on as Green Lantern editor for a while, and also take up the mantle of writing Guy and Kyle in Green Lantern Corps. So that's kind of interesting there. The rest of the story, not so much. Let's delve into it further, why don't we? Sure. Starting with the cover, it's an interesting cover, kind of abstract and having nothing new with the comic, but I kind of like it. Karen Grant has a sharper line with drawing Kyle, which looks more aligned with the sort of DC animated characters, which necessarily isn't a bad thing. But I do want to know why Kyle decided to bow up Wheatley from Portal 2. I mean, aside from the obvious reasons, no spoilers if you haven't played the game, which you should, because it's a fun game. Page 1, obviously this image is supposed to be an ominous portent of the future, with Kyle lying bleeding on the floor with a flaming sword stuck through his chest. But honestly, I'm so apathetic about the book right now, it really does absolutely nothing for me. Page 3, this is where the book gets kind of creepy, as the aliens throw this young girl, I guess Tina, or Tana, back in with the rest of the prisoners. All the whores, quote-unquote, that they're supposed to be keeping, or that they've stolen from the Black Circle prostitute farm, I guess which is weird, look like a bunch of children, so it's even creepier than I could possibly imagine. And then again, on the same page, if Shalandra and Benai are wanting to help out with this, why don't they have rings? I mean, obviously Kyle's trying to recreate the Green Lantern Corps, why doesn't he give them rings? Unless this is just part of Kyle's whole convoluted story of deception that he's trying to pull off, maybe that's the case. Sorry, maybe that's the case. Pages 4 and 5, I will give some credit to Jim Fern or James Bosch or whatever he's called. He does a good job of drawing the ship and the asteroids to look very different from many others we've seen in this run of the comics. I like the design of it. I like the detailing on it. And the detailing on the the page here, especially the coloring also, as well looks good as one of the asteroid plows through the 
ship's engines or propulsion system. It's it's some really nice artwork on these two pages here. However, it's completely thrown out the window when we move to page seven, where we get, like I said, Sergeant Kabuki Man and his amalgam of Shadowhawk and Kabuki armor. It's it's just all kind of nineties stupid with jagged edges and a stupid helm that looks like he's a Japanese demon. It's it's really bad. Really, really bad. Then on page eight, the dialogue here makes no sense. David is telling Terry that he got the job in LA for the Human Tolerance League, which was who Terry was working for. Then Terry says David is a freelance artist and knows nothing about PR, but Terry is a, a freelance artist working with Kyle. After that, David says he wants to prevent what happened to him from happening to others, and it was what happened to Terry that I think they're trying to prevent again. I don't know whether the word balloons got mixed around, or Rabe got confused, or who did what. Anyway, it's just sloppy storytelling and sloppy writing here. Really, really disappointing. And it doesn't get much better as we move to page 9, where Terry actually encourages Jenny to go out on this date. <sighs> page 10 is we're back with the uh, GLs and the uh, prisoners. It seems like Shalandra actually has some sort of energy power in her palms, that uh, she doesn't need to use her Green Lantern ring. It's like one of her alien race's physical things as she sort of burns through uh, the metal door to uh, release the prisoner. So that's kind of neat, I guess. But then moving back to Earth and on page 13, not only did Jenny go out on a date with the goon, but they have a poop-flinging monkey joke on this page as well. Thanks, Ben Rabe. I know I like to fling some poop at someone. <sighs> For some reason, I think that's an apt descriptor of how I'm feeling about this book right now. Then in the middle of the book, we get a sort of pull-out thing for Batman Gotham Heights number 50. It seems to say that it has to deal with something with Hush. I, I really don't care. <sighs> Actually, it's probably more interesting that's what's going on on page 14, which is Jenny ringing Hottie McEmerald Fever back into her arms and passionately kissing him. <sighs> I can't begin to tell you how much this irritates me, not only on a storytelling level, but just on a, on a personal level. If you're in a committed relationship with someone, you don't go screwing around on them just because they're away from you. I understand this is the DC universe and Kyle's a hero and he's Billions of light years away, but still, you're in a committed relationship. For for comparison, my wife and I had a time where we were separated. She was she was up in Alaska doing work for her for the hospital, working with some of the nurses at one of the hospitals up there, and I had to be here alone with the kids and myself for a month. During that time, I didn't go and screw around with some other per person. I didn't, you know, try and find someone else to date. If you're in a committed relationship, you stay in that relationship. And it really, really irks me that Ben Rabe's writing Jenny in this way. It it just frustrates me to no end. 
<clears throat> I'm going to try and get through the rest of the book. But it's, it's not helping that we get this scene where we get the complete reversal of what we had in the opening part of the conversation between David and Terry, with David saying that, okay, he'll give in and go to Los Angeles when he was the one who wanted to go into Los Angeles anyway. I, this makes no sense. Am I, am I missing something in this book? Is Ben Rabe just that bad a writer? This is just incredibly infuriating. Page 18, panel 3. I'm so frustrated with this book, I'm going to pull something juvenile out of it. I, I found it amusing when Kyle was grabbing the gun out of Tina's hand to stop her from killing the scumbag alien. That the sound effect, is, or the sound effect for it was FAP, F-A-P, which, if you know what that sound effect is used for nowadays, it's kind of amusing. But then on page 19, we get the Ever secret reveal that the guy in this stupid Shadowhawk armor is actually Kyle, and it's a way for him to infiltrate the Black Circle, which is an idea, I guess. Let's finish up the book. Page page twenty two is the last page I have note on, or have a note on, and I guess we get the reveal of Amon Sur again here, and uh, either he's wearing some big shoulder pads, or he's severely bulked up in the time since we've seen him in the Black Circle storyline. Uh, this, again, two books in a row that have been a pain to read. Uh, I, I'm hoping this is not what's going to be finishing up the run of the Greenlander books, because these couple of issues have been painful, and I'm <laughs> I'm not enjoying them as much as I have prior to these, so... Hopefully some ads in here will keep me entertained and make the show a little bit better. The front inside cover has a game a that states a whole lot of hurt in a belly shirt. It's Kaya Dark Lineage, which uh, depicts this uh, young sort of anime-looking girl in a belly shirt with a weird, spinny, double-bladed weapon fighting dinosaurs and crocodiles and jumping over lava and stuff. Yeah, another PlayStation 2 game that I think had absolutely no sequels and probably didn't really go anywhere at all. Just passed by that Kabuki Man-looking thing again. Ridiculous. Uh, then we've got an advertisement for a snowboarder. I guess her name's Tara Dekides. Uh She's a three-time X Games medalist, and she's advertising for Campbell's Soup at Hand, which is, I guess, the Campbell's Cup of Soup, which is kind of like traveling in time, if you know what I'm talking about, Dr. Huvans? Probably. After that, we get an ad for the LucasArts game Armed and Dangerous. I don't think I've ever played this one. Uh, it looks kind of interesting. There were some screenshots of you fighting a shark jumping out of the water, and your various group of villains cloaked in armor and with big guns and stuff, and it looks goofy. Doesn't say who it's by specifically, but it is LucasArts, and usually LucasArts puts out some decent games. Then we get a game that's from the creators of Donkey Kong Country and Banjo Kazooie called Grab by the Ghoulies. I remember this game vaguely. It's just another platformer game, but it's got a sort of interesting look. You, I guess you play a little kid who uh, goes and beats up some skeletons and zombies and mummies and things like that. Well, it looks kind of fun. 
After that, we get a revamp for the Magic the Gathering uh, $1,000 scholarship if you can play Magic the Gathering better than other people. So there you go. Card games can win you scholarships. Then in the inside pullout thing, we've got advertisement for Batman Rides of Sinzu. I know we covered that as well. As uh, Jack 2, the sequel to Jack and Daxter, I think. The platformer game with the weird elf guy and his little squirrel ferret sidekick thing. Time Crisis 3, which was the uh, shooter-type game. I guess this is for the PlayStation 2, and I guess you can actually buy uh, one of the guns to use. That's kind of neat. Uh, after that, we've got Maximum Chase, another racing game, which I guess is sort of Mad Max-ish. It says, wait until you see the one left in your pants. Oh, they're talking about skid marks. <laughs> I get it. Huh? Comedy. Then there's another advertisement for a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles game. I'm trying to remember whether this is... I don't know whether this is based off any of the TV shows at the time, or it's well past the movies. So... The design looks more like the Eastman Laird stuff, but I've never heard whether or not this game is any good or not. It looks more platformer than does side-scroller like the other Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle games. But then here's one that I've never heard released before, and that's surprising. It's a Masters of the Universe game for the Xbox, GameCube, and it doesn't say it's for the PlayStation 2, but it's a very Boris Vallejo-looking He-Man rather than the comic book-looking one. It says, The battle for the Eternia, only one shall, in the battle for Eternia, only one shall be victorious. And of course, it's got He-Man holding up his his sword with Battle Cat by him, and I guess... I guess it's another platformer RPG type game. I never even knew this existed. But then after that, you get an advertisement for Star Wars Jedi Knight Jedi Academy, which was a heck of a lot of fun game. I played this on the PC, and this was great. You, It was basically a sort of... It wasn't really a first-person shooter. It was like a third-person shooter. But you essentially got to wield lightsabers and you could do force tricks you could do force pushes and pulls and grabs and you could do force lightning it was it was a fun game for the pc i don't know how well it would play on the xbox but i'm certain people who are used to playing call of duty and stuff like that would play it easily on the xbox after that you've got a couple of people hiking up a mountain with the heads of mario and luigi slapped over their own faces. And I guess this is an advertisement for Mario and Luigi Superstar Saga, which is another, I guess, sort of Legend of Zelda-type RPG game for the uh, Game Boy Advance. Again, never heard of this one. Then there's another two-page advertisement for Ratchet & Clank uh, Going Commando, which has its own connotations as well. Again, the Ratchet & Clank games, I've heard, were really fun platformers for the PlayStation. Um, but since I didn't have a PlayStation, no idea how these played. Then they have an advertisement with a cutout picture of Mario in the Oval Office saying, Taxes, yawn. Foreign policy, bigger yawn. Forget politics and join the party with Mario Party 5. So Mario Party 5 was there, and obviously they're saying that it's more fun than being president, which I could definitely imagine. The back outside cover is an advertisement for Voodoo Vince, again, a game that I have no idea about, but I guess was a game. Who knows? 
And the back outside cover was for Beautiful Joe, the side-scroller game with the really amazing-looking cel-shaded graphics. That one was a fun one, so if you can find that uh, and you have your GameCube, check that out. I've heard it was a heck of a lot of fun. Certainly a heck of a lot of more fun than this issue was. Hopefully next time out, it'll be a lot more fun as well, as we'll be covering not only Green Lantern number 172, but also an interesting tale called Green Lantern Will World. This was a prestige format book with a writing by J.M. DeMatteis. Sounds like it's going to be kind of trippy, so get looking forward to that. Hopefully it'll be better than these previous issues. God knows it can't be much worse. Anyhow, thank you for sticking with me. Thank you for sticking with me through this sort of rough patch at the Green Lantern books. And we'll catch you next Friday on another episode of Just One of the Guys at Green Lantern Podcast. Until then, everyone, have a good week. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Inkle. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the denizens of the internet that comic books could be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed, too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website located at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers, and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Two True Freaks Presents Just One of the Guys Podcast, and you, you can subscribe to the show there. You can search for me on Facebook as well, and now you can find me there, as it was a requirement of my new Demonza Core contract. But it doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Candy Crush group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. The opening music for today's show was Jonathan Colton and his song, Want You Gone, from the game soundtrack, Portal 2. Of course, you can't buy this song unless you buy Portal 2, but you can buy versions of this song specifically from Jonathan Colton's website at jonathancolton.com. There you can buy myriad numbers of excellent songs by Jonathan Colton. I would suggest that you definitely go check out the site. You get to listen to all the songs for free, and you can purchase any and all of them you know, individually and download them for your own personal use. However... That really doesn't help the Two True Freaks website out at all. What does help the Two True Freaks website out at all is if you go to their website and click on the Amazon.com banner. Even though you won't be able to buy Jonathan Colton songs from Amazon.com, you'll be able to buy a myriad number of other things from Amazon. And every time you use the link to get to Amazon from Two True Freaks, a little amount of your purchase price will be shot back to the Two True Freaks website. 
So anytime you're thinking about buying movies, music, games, or entertainment of any sort, make sure you go first to Two True Freaks to buy things from Amazon.com.